Welcome to the South Mims U podcast. In this episode, we're unravelling a mystery while shedding light on some strange Victorian amusements. I'm here in a dusty attic with Alice Bell, who is our reader in Victorian history at South Mims. Hi, Alice. Hi. Thank you for coming. Well, it's a very impressive attic with a, a lot of boxes and, the, and a, a fine old rocking horse over there in the corner. Now, I, I understand your grandmother died last year, didn't she? Actually, my great-grandmother. She was 103. Oh, right. Sorry. No, that's OK. My grandmother, her daughter, is still alive. She's 94. Well, you're a, you're a long-lived family, then. It seems so. I hope so, anyway. Now, in your great-grandmother's papers, you found an intriguing document, didn't you? I did. As a historian, it's in my nature to dig around in obscure files and boxes of artefacts to find clues about the past. And when my great-grandmother, Eleanor, when Eleanor died, we found a small wooden box amongst her effects. And what was in the box? At first we didn't know. We couldn't find the key. And we didn't want to break the lock because it's a very finely made box. Mahogany with a carved relief of a scene from a classical story on top. Do you know which story? We think it's Prometheus. Any relevance? Not really. Oh, OK. Sorry. Carry on. We searched for the key, but in vain. So the box sat in my office for, oh, about six months, before my grandmother called me. She said she'd found a set of small keys in an old handbag which was made of silver. Silver? You mean the metal silver? Yes, the metal. There was a fashion for silver mesh purses. Ladies would use them to go to the opera or to balls. Yeah, actual silver? Yes, it's finely spun. Anyway, inside this purse were these keys, so the obvious thing was for me to try each of them on the box. And one fit? One did. The thirteenth one. I took that to be auspicious. OK, well, most, most would say that's unlucky. I like the number 13. It's never done me any harm. I mean, it's my birth date. So, finally, I opened this box. And what was inside? Letters. Very old letters. And a label. And a diary. Or a story. Oh. Was it a story in the form of a diary? Yes, that's what it turned out to be. And what was the label for? It was a large label, like a luggage label, and it had written on it, If you find this label attached to Little Monty, the angelic simian wonder, please inform Mr Augustus Cornbury Esquire, proprietor of Bacchus Pleasure Gardens, St Albans, Hertfordshire, for a reward of £2 and free entry to our magnificent gardens for one year. Sounds intriguing. What does it mean? Well, this is where it gets interesting. The label was pinned to a set of papers which had neat, elegant, though quite childish writing. It was dated August 29th, 1852, and titled This Monkey Came From Heaven. This Monkey Came From Heaven. Sounds like the title to a story. It does, though a story written as if it were the diary of a 13-year-old girl called Alice. Ah, and you're called Alice. After my great-grandmother's grandmother, Alice Ware. Right, so that's your um, great great uh, great grandmother after a while all the greats get confusing let's just say she's an ancestor <laughs> great oh i mean uh, well anyway so what was the story or diary entry about it explains the label little monty the angelic simian wonder ah right oh simian that little monty was a monkey i'll read you the beginning of the story please do okay <clears throat> father left me four books I wish he had left me more, but his library burned with the old house. I barely remember it. It was a castle to me, a castle more thrilling than anything in a story by Sir Walter Scott. My mother was the damsel in distress, maybe. 
My favourite of those books, The Ones He Left Me, is about clouds. It's by Mr Luke Howard, he who gave each cloud its name, Cirrus, Stratus, Cumulus, Nimbus, some of them as colossal as castles floating in the heavens. In summer they are burned by the sinking sun. And it was on just such an evening that a most remarkable event happened. I was making a daisy chain, my mind intent on making it the longest I had ever made. I heard something shriek. It was not a bird, nor a dog, or even a man, woman, or child. It was unworldly. I stood and scanned the rolling fields and hedges. I saw nothing. Then I heard it again and divined that it came from above, from the sky. I looked up, shielding my eyes from the pink sun setting sedately, just above the line of oaks in the direction of St Albans. A figure was floating down out of the sky. A dark, squat figure with what looked like a hat with a long feather sticking out of it. Above it was a broad white cloth which captured the air and stopped the creature from plummeting to the ground. The cloth, the size of a large bedsheet, had strings or ropes which encircled the creature. As it wafted hither and thither on the breeze, it screamed and hooted and screamed again, and then it became ensnared in the lower branches of the elm at the end of our garden. I was petrified. Was this a demon? Maybe a creature from the moon? I summoned the courage to walk toward it. It wriggled and shook and shuddered as it tried to understand its peculiar predicament. And as I advanced, I could see that it was a creature I recognised from my father's zoological volumes. A monkey! A monkey came from heaven to keep me company. That's a great opening scene for a film. It is, isn't it? Let me unpack some of what's in that passage. Alice's father, Arthur, was an attorney at law who had fallen on hard times after a long illness. It could have been typhoid, it probably was, and he was left an invalid. The family moved to the countryside where Alice's mother had relatives close by, in Ware, which is a town in Hertfordshire. They lived in a family property, a cottage by the road to St Albans. Arthur had died after the house burned down in 1848. Alice and her mother rented a smaller cottage here in South Mims, on the same road. I get a sense she missed her father terribly. You're right. Her letters are full of memories of him, and even my great-grandmother spoke of how she would always speak of him in glowing terms. The point is that he instilled in little Alice a great love of books and learning, especially science. She would grow up to become one of the first women to study zoology when universities began to allow women to study at them. OK, so the monkey. Tell us about the strange, weird appearance of a monkey from the sky. Right, well, that was the mystery. How could a monkey attached to a makeshift parachute appear out of the summer evening sky to land in Alice's garden here in South Mims? Which is not known for airborne monkeys. It's renowned for many things, but not that. No, before we get into that, I think I should read some more of the story come diary entry. Oh, please do. Right. As I ventured closer to the wriggling creature, it stopped its screaming and stared at me. It had dark, wet eyes and a wide mouth with big, bright teeth, which it bared, not in anger, but I believed in gratitude for its safe landing on terra firma. Sorry to interrupt, but her, her vocabulary and style isn't one you'd associate with a 13-year-old. Well, not a modern 13-year-old, perhaps, but you have to remember that Alice was a Victorian schoolgirl, and when she lived in London, while her father was a practising attorney, she went to a good school, a private 
school. And she was, well, very bright. A trait which runs in your family, of course. Thank you. I'll continue. Yes, yes, please do. The monkey was dressed in a tweed waistcoat over a starched white shirt with a stiff collar to which was clipped a red polka dot bow tie. A watch chain glinted in the sunlight and ran from a pocket on his left side to one of the walnut-shaped buttons on his waistcoat. I doubted if there was a real watch at the end of it. The monkey wore knickerbocker trousers, but no shoes. Strangely, he had two white wings sewn into the back of the waistcoat. They were made of board and inexpertly painted to look like an angel's wings. And hanging from his big toe was a large luggage label. The monkey stopped his shaking and wriggling and seemed to sigh and then smile. It looked like a smile to me and I interpreted it as such. Then quite suddenly, one of the ropes, closer they looked more like mere strings, snapped and the monkey fell ten feet to the ground. But he landed expertly and then sat on his behind and rubbed his eyes. I felt no fear. I knew that this was a kind creature, perhaps a much maligned and ill-used one. I felt sorry for him. So I simply stepped toward him, gingerly, not wanting to affright him, and then sat next to him on the sun-bleached grass which crackled under my frock. He turned to me, sighed, and then turned away, lay down covering his eyes with his large, angular hands. His wings buckled under his weight. I lay down too, and we stayed in silence. After a moment, he reached down and ripped the label from his toe and threw it behind him. I turned and caught it before the breeze could steal it, and I read what was written on it. So now she knows that this is little Monty, the angelic Simeon Wonder. Yes, and she will get a reward of £2 if she returns it to the Bacchus Pleasure Garden, proprietor Augustus Cornbury Esquire. So this is not a Simeon angel. Nor is it a figment of her imagination. Monty is a real monkey, and his sudden appearance from the summer sky can be explained very rationally. Which is a a little bit disappointing, (laughs) in a way. How so? Well, it makes such a good story. I mean, you could turn this into a kid's book with an adventure that, uh, I don't know, spans continents and time, and the monkey talks, and... uh, I mean, you get what I'm saying, right? I do, but I'm a historian. At first, I'm sure many people would have thought that Alice was making this all up, that she was in fact making up a story. Well, they'd say that she'd been reading too much Alice in Wonderland. That wasn't published until 1865. Oh, right. Well, Peter Pan then. That was a play in 1904 and didn't become a book until 1911. Well, she would have been ahead of her time then. She would have been, had this been fiction and had she published it. But that's not what happened. Everything can be explained. Well, you'd better explain it then. To do that, we need to talk about pleasure gardens. Okay, so let's talk about them. But I want to get back to that monkey as soon as possible. Don't worry, we'll get back to it very quickly. Good. So, uh, pleasure gardens had been around since the 1660s. They were landscaped in enclosed gardens, and by that I mean really a park. It was like a private landscaped park you paid to enter. They'd become extremely popular by the mid-18th century. The upper classes, mostly, would parade in their elegant finery up and down gravelled pathways, through colonnades, under arches, by fake ruins, around pavilions where a small orchestra might be playing, and onto a temple, fountains, even waterfalls. Some, like Vauxhall Gardens by the Thames, were renowned. In fact, 
Vauxhall set the template for many other pleasure gardens. What, was there a place to eat and drink as well? Yes, many of them offered dining, tea and coffee, alcoholic drinks. Most were open only in the summer months, for obvious reasons, but many were open in springtime too. And as they developed, they became places of entertainment, so there'd be fireworks and music and even opera and ballet. Pleasure gardens competed with each other to put on the best shows. Did they attract big crowds? Relatively big. The entrance fee meant that the poor or the working classes couldn't really get in, and the Regency Pleasure Garden was a very genteel place. Like I said, people got dressed up to be seen in the Pleasure Garden as well as to enjoy its amenities. And there was also quite a bit of, let's call it, courtship going on. Well, couples would go for romantic walks, right? Yes, and more. In fact, there was a bit of a moral panic about the Pleasure Gardens. Not because of the hedges, but because of what went on behind the hedges, right? Indeed. Most pleasure gardens built more secluded walks so that couples could, well, walk together. Just walk? Uh, Not just walk, no. There were alcoves in which supper could be served and they were very discreet. I see. And Vauxhall had what was known as the Dark Walk, which was a path which wound around the site and was well shaded. So as the sun went down, couples could get more intimate. And that caused the moral panic. Most entertainments at that time caused some sort of moral panic. And a crisis of class, too, as pleasure gardens began to admit the rising middle classes. OK, so let's talk about the entertainments. I mean, this is where Little Monty comes in, right? During the early Victorian period, there was a rise in what we'd call the entertainment industry. So you had more theatres, the beginnings of music hall, and so pleasure gardens found that their numbers were going down. They tried to get people through the door with more fireworks, bigger fireworks, more music, more dance and balloon ascents. Balloon ascents? There was quite an appetite for daredevil feats at the time. Tightrope walkers who defied death were popular. There were male and female tightrope walkers, and one was famous for walking on a high wire with a hat with fireworks attached to it. Another had fireworks at either end of the balancing pole he carried. Needless to say, some tightrope artists did not defy death. They died. Right, but balloons. Uh, You mean hot air balloons, right? Yes. Professional balloonists went from pleasure garden to pleasure garden and would ascend into the heavens, much to the wonder of the spectators, who, you've got to remember, had probably never seen a man or a woman rise high into the air on any craft, let alone in a basket hanging from a multicoloured balloon full of hot air. Well, I can imagine. But it wasn't entertaining enough, so they would spice up the act by dropping animals attached to makeshift parachutes out of the basket. That included cats, dogs, even cows and, of course, monkeys. You're serious? I am. There are stories of horses being lifted up in the air. They'd be in a harness attached to the underside of the basket. Sometimes the act did not end well, either for the animal or the balloonist. So what about Little Monty? Well, he seems to be one of a small band of monkey characters used by balloonists at the time when Alice was 13. One was called Signor Jacopo. He was quite well-known and well-loved. It seems that Little Monty was trying to cash in on his popularity, or at least his owner was. Was there a pleasure garden near South Mims at the time, then? Not in South Mims itself, but near St Albans, and only briefly. It was started by the Augustus Cornfield mentioned on Little Monty's label. He was an entrepreneur who had big plans for the Bacchus pleasure gardens. As the name suggests, he wanted to create a French chateau feel with vineyards and a large wine fountain at the heart of the design. A wine fountain? Yes, there used to be one at Hampton Court. Henry VIII had it built. The wine would flow out of spouts and you could use your cup to get a bellyful of wine. Cornfield had one built in the style of the French kings. But that must have been fun and 
raucous. Well, the venture didn't go well. Cornfield was not a good businessman. He even tried to corner the market in balloon stunts. He hired his own balloonist and insisted that they get a monkey. And that's where little Monty comes in at last. Yes, it is. As far as we know, Cornfield did a deal with the circus and one of their older monkeys was sold to the pleasure garden. The balloonist, a Mr Ned Grayson, concocted an act where he played St Peter and promised the audience that he would rise into the heavens and send back a guardian angel for one of the lucky spectators. The arrival of little Monty in his strange little angel costume would then create great hilarity. Oh, that was the plan. But the label suggests that the monkey, or any animal, might miss its mark. Am I right? Indeed. Animals plummeting out of the sky in and around pleasure parks became a hazard to residents and pleasure garden visitors alike. Right. So the parachutes weren't like the ones we know today, of course. Far from it. Far from it. There was a high mortality rate in both balloonists and animals. But in little Monty's case, the parachute worked. Thankfully. What happened next? Did Alice hand that monkey that came from heaven back to collect the two pounds? We don't actually know. The fact that she still had the label suggests not. But we can't be sure. I'll read you the rest of the document we found in that box. Oh, please do. I, mean, I can't wait. OK. As Mother was visiting with Dr Farley that evening, I decided that little Monty should have his tea with me. I remembered that there was half of the fine fruit cake which Aunt Cordelia had brought us on Sunday last. It was in an ornate tin, kept from the year of Queen Victoria's marriage to Prince Albert. I stood up and little Monty opened one eye to see what I was doing. I bowed to him and said, Dear little Monty, would you care to partake of some tea and cake with me? My bow must have ignited some memory or rote instruction taught him in a circus, for he jumped up and bowed in turn to me, a deep sweeping bow which detached the crushed wings from his costume. The monkey ambled beside me as I made my way to our kitchen, and he watched with interest as I put the heavy kettle to boil and cut him a slice of the rich fruit cake. He immediately devoured it. He was clearly starved. I gave him another slice and it disappeared in a trice, faster than the first. He slurped at the tea, spilling most of it on the table. Then he jumped up and pulled two carrots from a bunch which sat by our sink. His teeth crunched through them and they disappeared too. Satisfied with his repast, little Monty jumped on the table, then jumped back down onto the chair, then ran around the kitchen calling out in what I surmised was pleasure. He stopped after a minute and cocked his eye at the fireplace. I followed his gaze. It was my father's pipe, kept in its rack and placed by his portrait above the mantel. I often heard my mother speak to father in hushed terms while she baked or cooked. Little Monty put the pipe in his mouth and puffed it dramatically. Another trick from his days as an entertaining beast. It was then that tears welled into my eyes. How my father would have loved to meet little Monty. How he would have desired to study this primeval beast and understand his ways and manners. I sat and wept. Little Monty came close and put his paws on my lap and cooed. His lips forming a cone and a soft cooing sound calmed me. I knew in that moment that I would never forget this episode and that perhaps it was my father who had sent this monkey down from heaven to prove to me that life was still a rich and worthwhile thing to pursue. Is, is that where, where it ends? It is. It's quite sad. I mean, I didn't expect it to end like that. I think it reveals that despite the troubles that the family faced after Arthur's death, Alice was able to find comfort in the variety of experience and be open to whatever life threw at her, as perhaps her father had taught her to be. And what about the Bacchus Pleasure Garden? It only lasted one season and Cornfield was declared bankrupt at the end of the year. Many entertainments in the period experienced the same fate. 
it was a competitive market and Cornfield had backed the wrong uh, monkey, if you like. The Pleasure Garden was giving way to the Grand Exhibition and the Music Hall and Pleasure Gardens like Vauxhall were becoming more like fun fairs. Victorian entertainment was an ever-changing and evolving sector. Great fortunes could be made and lost. Just as they are now in the entertainment industry. Exactly. Nothing changes. And even though you don't know what happened to little Monty, I can tell that as a great-great-granddaughter, you're enchanted and inspired by that story. I am. As a historian, I have to be impartial, dispassionate. But as a direct descendant, I must admit I am inspired. And so are we. Thank you, Alice, for your story and for your insights into the frankly weird and strange world of Victorian entertainments. Well, I hope, dear listener, you've been inspired too. The next time a monkey comes from heaven, or any other strange event happens to you out of the blue, don't be afraid of it. Embrace it. And let it enrich your understanding of this crazy world. Goodbye.